sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We'll make that sex, drugs, and the Philharmonics. More about that on this week's edition of Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, and coming up, I interview Blair Tyndall, oboist-turned-journalist whose memoir, Mozart in the Jungle, Sex, Drugs, and Classical Music, revealed the steamy goings-on backstage of the classic music scene in New York City. The book was picked up by several members of the Coppola family and made into a much-talked-about Amazon TV series that just got renewed for a second season. But first, journalist Kim Masters fills us in on how the Church of Scientology has reacted to the bombshells revealed in HBO's documentary, Going Clear. Last week, HBO scored a ratings record with their most-watched documentary in nine years, Going Clear, directed by Oscar-winning documentarian Alex Gibney and based on the book by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Lawrence Wright. The subject is Scientology, a popular religion in Hollywood founded by sci-fi author L. Ron Hubbard. HBO has said that they had approximately 160 lawyers whose job it was to review the film in anticipation of challenges from the notoriously litigious Church of Scientology. The book and film feature interviews with prominent former Scientologists, such as director Paul Haggis, and members of the Most Inner Circle. They allege serious abuses by church leaders, such as David Miscavige himself, allegations that the church denies. It also covers the involvement of two of its biggest Hollywood members, actors Tom Cruise and John Travolta. Kim Masters, a prominent journalist, is editor-at-large of The Hollywood Reporter and host of KCRW's The Business. She investigated and reported on Scientology early on and is interviewed in the documentary Going Clear. I wanted to talk to Kim Masters about what happened since the documentaries aired and what the church's reactions have been. Oh, well, Scientology has been very busy denouncing the film. They've given out a number of statements. They've certainly packed my Twitter feed and other people's Twitter feed with ads for Scientology and ads bashing Alex Gibney, the creator you know, of the film, as well as the former Scientologists who participated in telling their stories in the film. So they've been out there doing the best they can. I don't know that it's particularly effective. I mean, some people are making fun of their the propaganda Saturday Night Live just did a thing uh, sending up Scientology. I mean, there's a lot of uh, stuff happening that would not have happened several years ago of just uh, kind of making fun of the church. Just yesterday, the LA Times reported a very interesting story about how David Miscavige, the head of the Church of Scientology, the church had apparently hired a private investigator to follow his father who had left the church and uh, this 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 the story is just uh, you know extraordinary. He's the, it appears that they're following this the father of the founder of of the current head of the church. Uh, this investigator had a car loaded with weapons <laughs> when he was stopped by the police and told them this this story of pursuing the head of the, the police. Actually, asked him if he intended to kill. David Miscavige's father, which he said he did not, but he also reported that he said that he had seen what he thought might be the father having a heart attack and called the church and was instructed by the head of the church not to intervene if it was his father's time to die, to let him die. So there's been a lot of coverage of the church. And, oh, there he goes. There's my doggie. 
And this was just recently they found this out. The report in the uh, in the uh, in the LA Times regarding the father. Yes, that just ran yesterday as we're speaking. So that ran on uh, Wednesday. Uh, here in, on, in April 8th, I guess, here. And the- also Wednesday, we're recording this on Thursday, John Travolta made a statement about um, going clear. What did you make of that? Well, you know, John Travolta has, up until now at least, he has uh, made it his business to support the Church of Scientology. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's sort of interesting because in my perception, John Travolta I, I mean, I would speculate that he has a sort of an understanding that he does what he likes in his life as far as, you know, he just leads his life the way he would like to lead his life. And the, and he supports the church and the church leaves him alone. And so he came forward and supported the church. And uh, that was it, you know, and I don't think to the surprise of no one. Right, right. What do you think has surprised U.S. audiences the most after Lawrence Wright's book in the documentary? Well, I think a lot of people just not aware of the extent to which certain kinds of conduct have been carried out by the Church of Scientology. I mean, they, they've sort of had a vague idea, but the idea that there is, you know, that there are these these kind of de facto prisons that the level of alleged abuse of people, you know, the, and the fact that people are willing at this point, you know, to remain despite the alleged abuse, uh, and e- even the theology, I mean, it really it depends on how closely you've been paying attention. You know, if you read Lawrence Wright's book, the documentary Going Clear didn't necessarily shock you, although it's very compelling to see former members of the church tell their stories and talk about you know, terrible stories that had happened to them being separated from their children and and uh, so forth and so on. So if you had read the book, it wasn't that, uh, that's that shocking, but again, brought it much more into focus. And uh, a lot of people haven't read the book, you know, the book did well, but lots of people don't really read. So I think I found there was a sort of a split reaction among the people who had read the book, they said, yeah, I, I knew that. And among the people who had not read the book, there was kind of a big surprise. A few things were left out of the documentary. There was, um, um, like, for example, Tom Cruise divorced to Katie Holmes. There was a lot of things about Nicole Kidman. And so, oh, do you have so any ideas to why? Oh, so much documentary, yeah. Is it just I mean, for the, time or was there an, a yes. more interesting reason? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I did not make this film, but I obviously was in the film, but I did ask Alex Gibney. There was a story that I particularly would have liked to see. You know, everybody has their story. One thing I discovered early on when you write about Scientology, if the word gets out in the community of former Scientologists that you're planning to write about it, they call you with these stories, you know, terrible stories of things that supposedly happened to them. And in order to get a story finished, I found you had to just say, that is terrible. I'm sorry to hear that that happened to you, but I can't do that because I'm doing the, uh, this story. And if I lose my focus, I will go into a rabbit hole and I'll never come out. It's, it, there's too much to do. So there was a story about what had been done some years ago uh, to one of the first journalists who tried to write about the Church of Scientology. They, they, this woman was framed. Uh, they broke into her apartment. They did terrible things to her. And, you know, my feeling was, you know, for those of us who write about the church, it's sort of like there but for the grace of God go, ah, they could have, if I had been one of the first 
you know, that kind of behavior might have happened to me too. But, you know, Alex said, I just couldn't do everything. And I certainly understand that because when I've written about the church, I have, there have been several times in my career where I thought that would be great to pursue and that would be great to pursue. And either I couldn't because that wasn't what I was out, you know, setting out to do, or I had editors at times who were afraid. Right, right. So have, have you been threatened? I have not been like by any means threatened. Mm. I'm, you know, the worst that's happened is, you know, sort of these phone calls where they try to tell you that, well, many legal letters, I would say, threatening, right. you know, and, and accusing that you're, you're an unethical and that you're relying on accounts of apostates. They like to use the language of religion. So they like to say apostates. They like to tell you that your sources were drug addicts or this or that, you know, unreliable people who are known to be x or y and and they they turned up at my office once and they said they wanted to give me a book and I wasn't there and they were asking for my home address which mm. was kind of funny because their lawyer has my home address okay. but one of their lawyers but uh, maybe the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing so you know there's a sort of a I would I call it in my case I've heard much worse stories from colleagues of mine you know just kind of maybe an implied kind of we're watching and we're we're maybe we'll sue you and maybe we'll do this or that but I've never really felt you know Which you're a little of extra cautious the, they maybe. of course you're deny little, everything <laughs> well they they deny absolutely everything they deny even you know their own doctrine sometimes they'll say well no, we never, we were never anti-gay, you know, whereas in fact they were, and they would, they will say, we never denied that autism is a condition that, you know, because there's often a lot of tension with Scientology about whether uh, psychiatric, you know, illness exists or is really an invention of this the field of psychiatry, which is the enemy to Scientology. So they will turn around and say, we never said that even though they actually did. So <laughs> you can't necessarily rely on the accounts that they yeah. get. But I, I have the feeling with now that, you know, you started quite early reporting on them, but after lots of more and more reports are coming, more and more films, why is the media not afraid any longer, if I can put it that way? Well, I think that the two things have happened, one of which is that the Internet came into being. And the Internet, I think, has been very devastating for Scientology because before there was an internet, people who left the church were isolated and very much afraid. I think that a lot of, you know, the, the, to this day, the people who are really facing what appears to be the retaliation from Scientology, those are the, primarily the people who were in the church, who were members. So the internet enabled them to find each other, connect, form a community, and I think it emboldened people a great deal to speak. And of course, our jobs in the press are much easier when people are willing to go on the record and tell their stories, which is really what happened. And then I think the posture of the church somewhat changed. I mean, I think it seems to me that the current leadership of the church is a lot more focused on preserving the church's wealth and not getting into protracted, expensive public battles that, you know, just really further damage the church's reputation in the past, you know, has led to people with the, involved with the church to go to prison for things that they did. But, and then, you know, subsequently there was much more, they were focused on lawsuits 
but I think they just seem now, it's almost the feeling is just let us do what we do and we won't necessarily spend our time suing you and the media. So, you know, it's just become a matter of time and internet and maybe a changed posture on the part of the church. In your, in your reporting, have you come to a conclusion why Scientology has been so attractive to Hollywood types? Well, yeah, as I said in the film, you know, it, Hollywood is a place where there's not a, a formula for success, you know, and there's not a pattern for, oh, you, you have these elements, so you're a movie star. I mean, there are a lot of very good-looking people, and they're not movie stars. There are a lot of talented actors, they're not movie stars. So everybody operates with a, a level of insecurity, unlike other businesses. I mean, you can you can design a car that doesn't catch on. But chances are, if you build a really good car, you will have some kind of, you know, success selling cars. Whereas in the industry here, nobody really quite knows what makes things work. So when somebody comes along and tells you that they have a science-based religion or whatever that will, any kind of formula. I mean, we, Scientology is hardly the only thing of that type to catch on in Hollywood where you've got a lot of very insecure people looking for some kind of guarantee that things will go well for them, you can understand how that's appealing and, and it creates a community, you know, and there were it's certainly stars. When, once you are a star, you get a tremendous amount of coddling and support from the church. So once you're in, it's extra attractive. I have a quote from author um, Lawrence Wright regarding the celebrity thing, the, sort of why he, he says, the reason I single out Tom Cruise and other celebrities is that they have a moral responsibility to demand change inside their church, which is committing abuses, and they know about it. It's not a secret. Do you think that any of these stars will ever, the big ones, the visible ones, Tom Cruise and, and John Travolta and such, will ever do that, question their own church from within? Uh, no, is the short answer. I don't. I mean, some have come out, Paul. Paul Haggis and Leah Romani have come out and denounced Scientology. I don't think Tom Cruise knows about, or if he knows about it, believes these allegations. You know, in Scientology, these the, they are counseled not to go on the internet, not to read this stuff. This stuff is considered to be what they call enseda. You know, Scientology has a kind of religion uh, language of its own. Uh, and enseda is like negative energy that it would... It, it would uh, it mess up the practice of Scientology for you to engage with this kind of material, to read Lawrence Wright's book or to watch Alex's film. So I think they live in a kind of bubble where they don't know about it. And if they do know about it, they think that suppressive per persons, SPs as they call them, are trying to put Entheta on their lines. <laughs> sort of talking, going into church jargon, but you know, that is the attitude. Now, maybe if, you know, also if you're, as you might know, you know, if you are auditing, have been audited over a course of years, they've got a big fat file with absolutely everything you've ever done in it. And it takes a lot of, uh, you know, you're, you're putting all of that stuff potentially out into the public if you step away from the church and denounce it. But I mean, in, so this, I in this day and age, sort of the, the, the audiences and fans of, of, of these stars, after these documentaries, and th I mean, whether the stars believe it or not, but I'm thinking the fans would question even more that they're Scientologists and pretty much anything they could 
come out and say, I did this in my life or I have this or I am. I mean, is it is it really so bad the secrets they can have in that auditing process is what I'm well, it may not seem so bad. We don't know. Right, right. <laughs> it may not seem bad to you or me. It may seem really bad to them. People are ashamed of all kinds of things. And uh, we don't know what it is. And obviously, I don't think we should know whatever they told somebody in confidence. But uh, it, it, obviously, it seems, I mean, I, I think there's a difference. I think there are certain people who might, you know, right now, I'd say the, the major, the, the Hollywood talent who's involved in, involved with Scientology, I don't think they've been recruiting that well. I think the ones who are still in are ones who grew up in the church, which we have a generation now, you know, of, of people who did grow up in the church. And other than that, they're not megastars. Is that, for example, Beck? He grew up Beck, in, right, yeah, right, or... Um, I'm blanking on her name. Elizabeth actor- Moss. Yes, mm. uh, Elizabeth. Yeah, people like that. And but you don't, you don't. I mean, first of all, the nature of stardom has changed so that the kind of star we don't even have that many stars right now who are in the magnitude of a Tom Cruise in the in his day. Uh, the business has changed, you know, to to some degree. But I don't think it's drawing in new star recruits that didn't grow up in the church much. I just think that for both Cruz and Travolta, the biggest stars in there, you know, I, I think Travolta is a little bit like he's sort of Switzerland. I don't, I don't know that he's still totally committed truly to Scientology. Uh, there were people who thought he might leave, and he, he obviously hasn't, but that certainly a lot of former Scientologists a few in the past few years have had this idea that Travolta might leave. And Cruz, I think Cruz is 100% committed. I just think he believes and he thinks everything negative is is fabricated. And that's where he is. I that's don't think what I guess is attention. so hard to believe with someone who meets so many people on film locations and all. And, and no one, I mean, whether he thinks it's true or not, but no one is telling him about the documentary or what's in it, or it just seems... I think he knows it exists, probably, and and, and probably thinks, you know, the, the bad people are at it again. You know, that's what he probably thinks. Well, lastly, um, do you think things will be different for the church now that so many people have seen this documentary and it's a little bit more public? Um, things are well, going? the big question, you know, would be whether the church loses its tax-exempt status. And, and there's a petition to press the government to open this up again. And I have to think at some point, it is a little embarrassing, the kind of allegations that I mentioned about David Miscavige, you know, the church having a private investigator chasing his father around and the kind of, uh, this whole debacle, it just seems like at some point the federal government might sort of take a look, but that might open up this volley of litigation again. And, and the, it's kind of a, an amazing thing that the government cannot seem to take on as well-funded an adversary as the Church of Scientology. It's the legal resources to fend them off, you know, are not available to the United States government, it appears. So that would be the next, I think if Alex Gibney were to be asked, what do you, you know, what would you like to see happen? That would be his answer, but I don't know that it will happen. But if it would happen, if the IRS, if they would get their tax exemption revoked, would the church just collapse in terms of money then? I, I I think it would be a very, I mean, it would be devastating from what I understand. I don't think they have so many members right now. You know, I think they're sitting on a huge amount of property and money. 
and you know that that it's kind of if the Church of Scientology actually hired a private investigator, it's to to chase the church leader's father. You know, that's it's kind of a weird thing to think that that is subsidized by American taxpayers. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, look as the Scientology would point out, I will say, you know, there has been a lot of criminal activity on in, inside the Catholic Church, and it doesn't, nobody talks about them losing the subsidy that they get. So if you're sitting there in their chair, they say, hey, what are you picking on us for? Well, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Um, thank you so much, Kim Masters, for taking your time. My pleasure. Switching over to a very different world, the TV series Mozart in the Jungle by creators Roman Coppola, Jason Schwartzman, and Alex Timbers is about the inner workings of the classical music scene in New York City, and it made quite a splash when it premiered on Amazon this January. In it, Malcolm McDowell plays a retiring conductor being replaced by the fiery new maestro Rodrigo, played with bravado by Gael Garcia Bernal. Many have speculated whether the Rodrigo character is based on, or even a parody of, the real conductor in the L.A. Philharmonics, Venezuelan maestro Gustavo Dudamel. Lola Kirk, who's the real-life sister of girl star Jemima Kirk, plays Haley, a young, very talented oboist just starting out. The show follows the intrigues, backstabbings, love affairs, wild lives, power struggles of the musicians, conductors, and administrators at the New York Symphony. Please join me in welcoming a man who need only be introduced by his first name, your new conductor and musical director, Rodrigo. Hear that? I like it. It's playful. Rodrigo has said, and I quote, the New York Symphony is a dead, irrelevant corpse. Is this just going to be all about Rodrigo? The first violin played sharp 17 times in the first movement alone, and we weren't able to perceive Tchaikovsky's desired dynamic shift from bars 27 to 34. Changes will be made. I thought I knew every oboist in town. I'm Cynthia. Cynthia Taylor, I know. You're a second cello in the New York Symphony. You're really good. Thank you. All I spend my time doing is like figuring out how to make money, and none of it is about the art. I don't care what the hell you're doing right now. Drop it and get over to the symphony hall. Rodrigo is holding auditions. Get in here from me. I saw you. You have talent. The show and oboist character Haley are based on Blair Tyndall and her very revealing memoir called Mozart in the Jungle, Sex, Drugs, and Classical Music. Miss Tyndall played oboe professionally for 25 years under conductors such as Leonard Bernstein and Zubin Mehta. She played with the New York Philharmonics, the San Francisco Symphony, and in the Broadway Pits. I'm very happy to speak to Blair Tyndall, who not only wrote the book, but is a consultant on the TV series Mozart in the Jungle that just got greenlit for a second season on Amazon. Thank you so much for having me. Have you ever played in Scandinavia? Actually, I have not ever been to a Scandinavian country, and I was going to come this summer. Oh, good. Oh, you were or you are? I'm, I'm just starting to put it together now. You have, definitely have to come to Stockholm. It's beautiful. Well, this will be my 49th country. I'm almost up to 50. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, then you really saved us for last. <laughs> uh, when did you start playing an instrument? I started playing piano when I was four or five. Mm-hmm. And then uh, oboe is something that you can't play when you're that small because you just can't reach the keys. So I uh, took up the oboe at 11. Why the oboe as a child? 
seems like a, an interesting choice. Well, remember, I'm not from a big city. I'm from a university town in the southern U.S. I'm from North Carolina. Uh, we didn't even have an orchestra program, but we had a band class, and they put us all in the sixth grade, so we were 11 and 12, in a room and gave us a test, very complicated. Is this note louder or softer, higher or lower? And then they, they went through all of us in alphabetical order and let us choose our instruments. I was third from last, and they only had oboes and bassoons left. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I got. <laughs> but you actually stuck with it. I mean, you enjoyed it. I'm not sure I enjoyed it, but there, <clears throat> oboe is an unusual instrument. It's very difficult to play, and you kind of become teacher's pet if you play it fairly well, and it, it makes you stand out. <clears throat> there are hundreds of flutists, but there are very few oboists or bassoonists. <laughs> what, is so, what is special about the instrument, besides it being unusual that there's not too many? Well, I think, you know, a lot of little girls dream of playing the flute. You look very angelic and beautiful. The oboe is just this kind of uh, gray zone. It looks so much like the clarinet. I don't think people are really aware of what it mm -hmm. is, which makes it extra specially exciting that there is now a television show based on my book where the main character plays the oboe. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, playing the flute, you really can look fairly attractive. Playing the oboe, it's very high pressure. You're blowing air very, very fast mm -hmm. into this tiny hole, that, you know, the size of the head of a pen. And, you know, veins start popping out. Your face gets red. You look ridiculous. <laughs> play the oboe. So it's not, not that popular. You also have to make your own reed mouthpieces. So that adds a whole dimension that a lot of people lose patience with pretty quickly. What do you mean make your own? You, you get some, I mean, you actually construct it? Yes, you buy cane. It's a type of bamboo called Arundo Donax. It grows in the south of France. So I, I you know, will order a couple of kilos of the stuff from uh, Antibes. And then you have this whole factory set up at home where you end up making them into a uh, a double reed mouthpiece. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> Things you don't know. And and as a small as a, as a kid when you were how much of your life was music in practice? Well, I uh we spent some time in Vienna when I was really small, so I was exposed to opera and ballet and things that I never would have been able to see back home in North Carolina. And uh I got interested in music at that point and my uh when I got to high school, which was in my state, the 10th grade, I went away to a state boarding school for the arts called the North Carolina School, school of the Arts. And uh, so it was just, you know, music 24-7 from then on and went on to college at a conservatory. Well, Mozart in the Jungle, I mean, both, both your, your book and the series that's based on your book, it, it really sort of dives into the inner workings of the, the professional classical music world. Um, and, and sort of like any other contained world, I guess you have intrigues and power and power struggles and love affairs and, and you know, drugs or, and, and everything. But can you paint us a picture of, of your life as a young oboist starting out professionally in New York City? Well, I was very fortunate. My teacher uh, from the North Carolina School of the Arts had won the principal oboe job in the New York Philharmonic just as I graduated from high school. So when I went to college at the conservatory, he fairly quickly, I was his best student, and he fairly quickly got me onto the substitute list at the New York Philharmonic. So, you know, somebody's sick or they need an extra oboe for something 
like the Rite of Spring that has five oboes instead of the usual four, I would get called to come in and play from, I think I started when I was 22. And then once you're, you're seen there, people ask you to play all kinds of freelance jobs. So it was, this was in the early 80s, and it was a certain time and place. It was, um, things were very freewheeling in New York. I never did drugs, but I was certainly around a lot of people who did drugs. And it was that, that parcel of time where women had the pill, so you didn't have to worry about pregnancy, but we didn't know that AIDS existed yet. So we had, there were sex clubs all over town, like Plato's Retreat, and, you know, all this crazy stuff was it going on. It was still on. sort of the tail end of Studio 54 and everything, wasn't it, that, that era? Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. That sums it up, and cocaine was everywhere. Mm. But did you, like, go as, a, as, a, as an orchestra family around and do all these things? No, not really. The partying existed mostly in people's homes. People really would. There's a scene that a lot of people claim would never happen in the pilot episode of the show where uh, people are drinking and getting high. They've actually rigged up uh, in the show something called a ganjanome where there's a, a marijuana joint attached to one of those old-fashioned metronomes that ticks back and forth. Right, right. <laughs> it's very funny. But they're having a, a drunken spin-the-bottle uh, playoff where a flutist and, and the oboist who is playing me uh, spin the bottle and it lands on a type of music like contemporary, romantic, classical, and then they have to play an excerpt, drunk. <laughs> and I see these funny comments online, oh, a real musician would never do that. Well, if we'd only thought up the spin the bottle game, we certainly would have used that. But <laughs> I mean, everybody I know wants to play the spin the bottle game. And, uh, you know, we would have parties, with all the usual drinking, and we'd just have a great time and play chamber music, and it was it was tons of fun. How, how, but can you actually play a, a, a concert after, the day after a, a night like that at your level at the New York Philharmonics? Uh, well, it's certainly been done. <laughs> <laughs> did you? <laughs> I, I, I did. I, I could have... I'm sure I would have sounded much better had I not done that the night before. And that's for somebody at the level of the New York Philharmonic, you know, these people are, it's a, it's a big job. They really don't behave that way. The freelance world is something different. I mean, to keep your job at a major orchestra like that, you really do have to take care of yourself and behave and be on the top of your game. I know that, that you've said that you're particularly proud that your book um, sort of highlighted the un unsung heroes of the sort of union musicians. That was my intent and there was a lot of backlash from people who I do not think actually read it. A lot of musicians read the jacket cover which I didn't write, my editor wrote to you know, he wrote it in a way to sensationalize the book to make people buy it. That's it's a business. And uh, I think a lot of musicians thought that I had if somebody's name was in it, I was saying something negative about them when in 90% of the cases, the opposite was true. I was trying to celebrate my colleagues because I don't think people realize how hard they work and how much they sacrifice. Well, actually, you were blacklisted, right, from the to, to, to working professionally. Blacklisting is kind of an informal term. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are no rules about how you get hired or not hired, really. Right. And when I moved to, for example, I was very busy in New York my whole life. When I moved to San Francisco to go to journalism school, I was immediately playing in the San Francisco Symphony and the, you know, teaching at oboe at Berkeley, and I worked all the time. 
moved back to New York, wrote the book, came out here to Los Angeles, which has a very much thriving musical scene. Just, you know, I did all the usual things that I had done before when I moved to San Francisco. Nothing. I got, I have had one union job in 10 years. But I continue being a member because there are a lot of great benefits. Um, They give us lots of music technology classes for free, so it's well worth uh, paying the union dues. So after 25 years or so of being a professional, you you made a pretty big career change. You got a full scholarship to Stanford and became a journalist, and you've written for New York Times and such. Um, And your first book, if I understand this correctly, most sort of the joke, right off the bat, who calls but the Coppola family? How did this happen? Well, uh, the book was, I was such a Hollywood outsider. I'm not anymore. No. (laughs) (laughs) Who, Who would have thought that? You know, and I'm 55 years old. These things don't happen. People might. <laughs> I had had the first review of the book was in a publication called Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. It's a Hollywood trade publication that everybody reads every week. And I didn't know what it was. I thought it was, you know, I lived in New York, sheltered my whole adult life. I thought it was a, a free giveaway in a doctor's office or something. <laughs> no, it's like the main industry magazine, that and Variety and Hollywood Reporter. So I was the book of the week. There's a picture of me, and I guess Jason Schwartzman saw it. He is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew and uh, cousin of Roman and Sophia Coppola. And the family has a couple of um, the grandfather and great-uncle of Jason were very, very famous musicians. The great-uncle is still alive. He's 98, and he was at the premiere, acting like he was 30. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and he contributed a lot of funny stories. So they know music, and, you know, there's been a lot of grumbling in the music community about this little thing isn't correct. Well, they know. I mean, they really know music. Uh, but it's, you know, it's meant to be entertainment, and you you have to use a certain shorthand to get the drama and the comedy across. So this was very close to their hearts, then, the Coppola family, considering their the musical background his grandfather was actually a big conductor right uh the grandfather was carmine so he was a flutist principal flutist in the nbc symphony right and he's no longer with us but the great uncle is anton coppola and he's the conductor both of them composed too and was anton wasn't he involved in the production at all or is he yes he contributed a lot of stories and and little insider jokes and things um there's a funny scene where uh the younger conductor, Rodrigo, is going on and on about, you know, I want this nuance and that nuance. And one musician turns to the other and says, does he want it faster or slow? <laughs> Which is a kind of hackneyed musician joke if you're in the business, but it, it is funny. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have to ask when we're talking about Rodrigo, um, he's so, that's such an incredibly special fantastic character and he's so hands-on first of all Rico, is it a little bit Dudamel I think it's a hundred percent Dudamel hundred percent Dudamel that's what I was thinking <laughs> but to a total amateur like like me who doesn't can you actually explain the difference for you as a musician between different like what would be the difference between like a Bernstein a Meta and a Dudamel I mean is it their style? Is it the way they, they work with you before? I mean... Well, I, I haven't worked with Dudamel, but I've worked with the other two. Right. Um, I think th- there's one common thread there that's rather unusual among conductors, which is they are all, all of those three guys are respectful of the musicians, 
which we don't encounter much. Mm-hmm. And if, if you feel trust from the conductor that you're going to do a good job, and if you feel like you're being valued, you're going to do a much better job because you're not <laughs> terrified. <laughs> um, Bernstein I only worked with at the end of his life, and he was pretty, well, he was always a character, but there was just something internal about Bernstein that was, uh, it's hard to describe. He could almost not even use his hands, and you would play like a god for him. He mm. just, exu- he just, there was something very special in his spirit. Meta is a terrific conductor, uh, technically, and he's just a wonderful man. He's, he's a terrific guy. He was always a real supporter of the musicians, uh, but technically he was fantastic, and I, I hope I play under him again. He's still quite active. And, and, and when you say that there's conductors that, that would instill fear, how, how would they do that? Just make you nervous and that you were playing wrong? or is it? Well, there's a, there are a couple of things. There's the glare. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the hand. When you see the hand like a traffic cop coming at you, meaning softer, and you can't play any softer because you're in a low register or something, you just can't play any softer. Or you're, you're coming up to a an entrance that's very difficult to do def- it's very hard to play in a lower register on the oboe softly mm-hmm. so cuz i played second oboe mostly in the philharmonic i saw the hand a lot and i saw the upcoming entrance glare a lot okay. <laughs> i would just be there just quaking in my boots it's i mean it can be terrifying it sounds silly but um no i've be- seen whiplash i think <laughs> yeah, okay. that was a terrific movie well, did you like it as a professional musician because that was terrifying <laughs> we go through the same sort of thing and i have to say one of the this isn't conductor related but one of the more terrifying moments for a young musician young oboist is uh the audience goes silent after they the concertmaster walks out he stands, looks at you, the oboist, and you have to give the A. It's like the solo of your life. Oh. And it is possible to give the A is the tuning note. It's possible for it to just, you can really butcher that. Oh, no. <laughs> Has that happened to you? It's happened to everybody. Oh. As, as life goes on, though, it's kind of second nature now. But uh, getting back to the series, so you spent time on sets. You've been the writer's room and as an advisor and contributed to the stories. You even have a cameo. How important has authenticity been to, to the filmmakers, to Roman Coppola and them? Oh, my gosh, very much so. Um, one of the things that pleases me no end is that they, I think about 350 musicians were hired either to be on, on screen, recorded, or be coaches, all of the... Uh, actors had a an instrumental coach who was there full time. That's amazing. Yeah, and you know, I think I think string instruments. I don't want to devalue anybody's performance, but string instruments are just very very hard to mime unless you really play one. Uh, Saffron Burroughs, who plays the cellist, actually does play the cello. It's her third cello role, and she studied with the principal cello of the New York Philharmonic to get ready for it. Oh, so cool. she, yeah. And wind instruments are pretty easy to fake. Well, I have two friends here in Sweden who are professional musicians for 20 years, and they were extremely impressed, but not, not I mean, also just of how Lola Kirk will just pick up the oboe and just little, little tiny little details that you seem to have thought of. Well, I, I, I agree. That's very astute. She, one of the first things that I noticed was that she really had all the 
quirky little weird characteristics of even how you pack up the oboe or and one of the stranger things there's no reason she had to look like me but she is a dead ringer for me when I was that age oh that's amazing <laughs> and even her mannerisms and everything it just it's just a coincidence wow and who who trained um who trained her did were you did you could you work with her since it's your instrument? No, because um, it was shot in New York, and I was on the West Coast. So I didn't. They hired a young lady named, uh, I can't remember her name. Uh, I hadn't known her before, but she had a you know a professional oboist as a coach. Um, and she can play a little bit. Uh, I think she kind of, she didn't really need to play, but she, she learned enough so that she could do a pretty good job. And what about Gabriel Garcia Bernal? Who who trained him? I mean, who worked with him? Oh well, this is interesting. A friend of mine named uh, Conrad Harris was his violin coach, and I have to say he did really well. I thought he looked quite. I wasn't even aware he wasn't really playing. Um, so, and for conducting, he had uh, the flutist conductor Ransom Wilson as a coach. Mm-hmm. Very well known American conductor. I love the way they tied the administrative stuff in because it's such a big part of our world. But they have the, you know, cheesy PR. I don't, does that make sense? Cheesy. The oh, yeah, the hair. The, what the, was it? Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> Feel the, the hair or what was it? Or hear the hair. Hear the hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's an old musician joke, too. We always say, we see some new conductor and he's got a great head of hair. Well, he's got to be good. He's got the hair. <laughs> <laughs> has, has Dudamel commented at all? Do you know? Yes, I do. I'm friends with um, the woman who runs the L.A. Phil, who mm-hmm. actually appears to be the basis for Bernadette Peters' character, uh, Deborah Borda. Oh. She said he's afraid to watch it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's watched it. He just doesn't want to say anything. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would be afraid, too. But, I mean, I, th- I, think that the, I think that the Rodrigo character is just so human and real and uh, obviously great musician I think he'll really be flattered I, I think they've taken the best parts of your book um, but since of course Dudamel wasn't during your time they've also ad- made some really really cool ad- additions do you feel the same way when you see it 110 percent I am so happy with every last thing they did how involved are you in season two congratulations by the way for well I couldn't imagine that we weren't going to get a season two they did such an amazing job they're just putting it together now, and I, I just got new representation with one of the big Hollywood agencies, the Gersh Agency. So mm-hmm. we're working on getting me into a more active role. I don't want to interfere, but I do have a lot of knowledge that could come in handy. Okay. So you may be writing even more for them for that for season two. I would love to. Well, Blair, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, and, and, and we really enjoy the series, and it was so great to get to talk to you and, and hear behind the scenes. And um, good luck with everything else. Thanks for reaching out. I really appreciate it. And that's it. Oh, please join me again next week when I interview one of the coolest writers, producers in television. She's worked on everything from Colbert to Portlandia to Kimmy Schmidt. Alison Silverman will be one of my guests. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I'd love to hear from you. Production engineering and editing by Tom Hansen. Web design by Andreas Knutsson and music by Carl Borg. Producers René Witterstedt, thanks to Tomasio, Albin Vikander and Peter Biro. I'm Christina Jörlingbyrå, and thanks for listening.
Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.